Hi, this is Bear Christianity, Chapter 6, 84% Faith. Well done for making it this far. Whether we believe in God or not, faith, in the non-religious sense of the word, is unavoidable. This is because our universe is almost entirely governed by forces and powers that we have no control over. We have to trust these powers and forces. We have to trust that they will keep doing what they do so that we can keep doing what we do. By looking at these powers and forces and measuring them, we are to some extent able to predict their behaviour and so feel more confident or less confident in them. Maybe all the looking and measuring will help us control some of them in some way someday. But until we can control all of the powers and forces, we have to have faith in them. When I first began writing this book, I was under the impression that about 84% of the universe is made up of dark matter, hence 84% in the title. Dark matter is matter that we can't see or measure, even under the most powerful microscope. We know it exists because it affects the normal matter that we can see and measure. It's now thought, however, that normal matter makes up less than 5% of the universe, with dark matter and dark energy making up 95% plus. So perhaps the title of this chapter should be 95% plus faith, 95% plus believing and depending on the existence and behaviour of something that we can't see, we can't measure and we can't control. And that said, of the normal 5% that we can see and measure, only a tiny fraction is actually within our control. And by the time that tiny fraction is divided up between all of us, our personal controllable no need for faith part would be immeasurably tiny. We have no choice but to have faith in each other as well as the uncontrollable, unseeable and seeable. It might be more appropriate to call this chapter 99.99999% plus faith or go the other way and call it immeasurably little control because in practice it seems that the more we look, measure and try to control the more we realise that the universe is bigger, more complex and less controllable than we ever thought and it could be getting more so all the time. But before I go on I should say that although I have just said that we have control of an immeasurably small fraction of the universe, I am definitely not saying that we have no control at all. In fact, that immeasurably small fraction is, as far as I can tell, immeasurably significant, both for us and our universe. Our choices have a life-altering impact on others and our planet. If we had no control at all, then it'd not only be pointless talking about where to put our faith, because we'd have no say in the matter, but it would make the whole idea of faith itself completely redundant. In chapter 2, I said that faith is actively trusting in something or someone. To experience the benefit of putting our faith somewhere, there needs to be the possibility that we might not or haven't always put it there. 
Now that, of course, is part of the wider question of whether or not we have free will, which I won't discuss in any more detail for now, other than to say that we live, act and plan, we behave as though we do have some level of free will. If we don't have any free will, then the way we see and judge ourselves is wrong. We are living a lie, an inescapable lie. Anyway, back to the subject of faith. A lot of the time, the question of where to put your faith seems hardly worth asking. Often, it doesn't appear to matter what we believe because the world keeps turning, life keeps going, and there is plenty to keep us diverted. Why ask the question when you don't feel you need the answer? But life doesn't just keep going, and apart from the constant unavoidable faith decisions we make in life, difficult times and extreme situations do come then our faith really matters because that's what sustains us and gives us the strength to keep going. Faith is the thing that enables us to live in peace, to be fulfilled in life when we aren't in control. Without faith, we'd either suffer overwhelming fear of the uncontrollable unknown or perhaps worse, we'd have to live with the utter boredom and despair of having complete knowledge and full control. We'd end up having to medicate ourselves to escape, to create false experiences that force imagination and creativity, or completely dull our senses. Now this also raises the interesting question of the power and sovereignty of God and the possibility of his eventual unabating boredom, and eventually ours, as we join him in eternity. Now this is something we will come back to later. But what it highlights is that there is great value in thinking about where we invest our faith now. It's important, even when it may feel least important. In chapter 2, for the record, I said that in our culture, faith is most commonly used to describe our belief and trust in God, and that I would continue as though faith is our trusting belief in God. So, with the unavoidable need for faith, and the great value of thinking about where to put it in mind, over the next few chapters, I'm bringing God into it. In particular, the Christian God, the I am conscious eternal God with a personality that I mentioned in chapter two, and have been talking about ever since. I'm going to talk about whether this God, the Christian God, could be the creator or the source of the whole universe, and whether he could be the Lord or governor of the immeasurable and uncontrollable of the 95 plus or the 99.9999% plus. But first, here's an impossible but fun to discuss question about faith. Does it take more or less faith to believe in a conscious God with a personality than to believe in no such God? Does it take more or less faith to believe in a conscious God with a personality than to believe in no such God? It's not quite the same as asking, do you need more faith to be a theist or an atheist? But in this context, it's close enough. Now, of course, it's impossible to answer that question because there is no measure for faith. Jesus said that if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could tell a mountain to move from here to there and it will move. And that nothing will be impossible for you. He said that in Matthew 17 verse 20. But how do you put faith in a pot and measure it against the size of a mustard seed? 
was impossible. It is probably fair, however, to suggest that there is something about experiencing something that offers a confidence in that something being there than not experiencing it offers confidence in it not being there. I'm not suggesting that an atheist doesn't experience anything. There are deep, profound and relational experiences found in all sorts of places for theists and atheists alike. I'm just suggesting that the experience of emotional or spiritual warmth felt by a believer as part of their relationship with God might offer them more confidence in God's existence than an unbeliever's lack of that experience offers confidence in God not being there. Indeed, my experience suggests that this emotional or spiritual warmth, more often than not, is the deciding factor, the scale tipper, the final vote caster in where people put their faith. Now, we'd never be able to prove in a court of law that the emotional or spiritual warmth experienced by believers is actually a living God because experiencing God's touch or hearing his voice is so subjective. Now, I can't get into a discussion here about the credibility of psychology as a science because it's way above my pay grade. In fact, I don't even have a pay grade. But I can say that it's okay to say that experiencing God's touch or hearing his voice is subjective because in the end everything is, even our own physical existence, is subjective. René Descartes famously wrote, that his ability to think or doubt was the only way to prove his own existence. He didn't actually say the words, I think, therefore I am, but that's basically how we have interpreted them from the original, from the French. Latin. Descartes wrote in Latin. He would have spoken French, but he wrote in Latin. However subjective, believers believe that the something they have experienced is God and that God speaks to us throughout our lives in all kinds of ways from internal instincts to external forces from a personal moral conscience to a deep hunger for meaning belonging and zest for life from the vast forces of nature and supernature to a warm cozy fluffy feeling from the hairs on the back of our neck standing up to a voice in the Tesco's butter aisle and much more besides. An eternal God must be able to communicate in an infinite number of ways, a lot more than us anyway. A believer believes that God uses all of these ways to relate to us, and a believer responds by allowing a relationship to grow, which in turn allows faith to grow naturally. That's how relationships work. Faith and trust grow or die as a result of personal relationship. It works like that with our friends, it works like that as we relate to the world, and it works like that as we relate to God. If we don't attribute that something experienced to God, then there is not much chance of the relationship developing and our faith growing. That said, I have never heard an atheist attribute their lack of faith in God solely to a lack of personal experience of him. Lack of personal experience more often results in agnosticism and uncertainty, which is fair enough. It wouldn't be reasonable to say that there is no God just because we haven't met or recognised him yet. The universe is far too big 
and complex for that. In fact, it's more reasonable to suggest that the more we look at the 5% of matter that we can see and seek the 95% that we can't, the more we could be convinced that some kind of conscious personality is out there, behind the design, existing in a place we haven't seen. I have, on the other hand, heard people say that they don't believe in God because they cannot see how he can exist, not while there's suffering and injustice in the world, not while he doesn't respond appropriately to prayer. One famous celebrity cited bone cancer in children as an example of why he's an atheist. And it's a really good example. It's based on a strong sense of right and wrong and a healthy interest in God's responsibility, his morality and his power. And I'll talk more about that in later chapters. But for now, it adds even more to the idea that the warmth of a relationship with God feeds a believer's faith because it provides such warmth that they are able to find enough peace to have faith in him, even amongst all of the suffering, even amongst all of the injustice and the answered prayer. Sorry, the unanswered prayer. And this, I think, is the key to where we really put our faith. Consciously or subconsciously, I think that we put our faith in the place that we find the most peace. A theist puts their faith in God because they can see that the restlessness, fear, anger, pain and uncertainty can be carried in the arms of God, with God supernaturally. God offers inner peace now during the storms of life and for eternity after the storms with life after life. I've already quoted the peace that transcends understanding in the last two chapters from Philippians 4. And this won't be the last time because I believe that our faith really is hinged in this place where we can find peace even when the science and the current situation may not be enough to tip the balance. An atheist who cites the problem of suffering as the source of their unbelief, on the other hand, I'm suggesting doesn't put their faith in God not because there is no evidence for God, but because they cannot find peace in the existence of God where there's a lack of peace in the world. So perhaps they find more personal peace in believing that there isn't a God. After all, if there isn't a God, then you don't have to blame him or rage at him for not making things better. Of course, the problem with this train of thought is that there is no option for eternal conscious peace, no conscious life after life option. Maybe this piece that doesn't make sense, uh, that transcends understanding, is, is one of the reasons that Karl Marx suggested that religion is the opium of the people. Maybe. Opium is a drug that soothes pain and offers feeling of euphoria instead. It helps alleviate emotional and physical suffering. Maybe Marx watched believers find inner peace too easily. Maybe he thought it was like watching somebody avoid the harsh reality of the world by taking opium. It is true that religion and opium induce some kind of peace, but there is a big difference in where that peace leads. Opium kills the inner fire and in large doses will induce a coma, whereas religion tends to do the opposite. Religion engages the emotions and ignites inner fire. Some of the most fiery activists and emotionally engaged revolutionaries ever born have attributed their drive to their faith in God. Marx was a contemporary of, in the mid-19th century of Christians such as Hudson Taylor and William Booth and David Livingstone and Charles Spurgeon. Um, <clears throat> you just need to look them up to see what they did. 
I think the opium addicts at the time had slightly different legacy. Well, maybe Marx wasn't thinking along those lines at all. Maybe he was saying that people use religion to sedate others, to control them, to stop them rising up. History proves that he would be right there. And it's an important point. Religion shouldn't be used like that. It shouldn't be used as a tool to control people and certainly not to crush people or cause them harm or evil. True religion should set people free, enhance life, facilitate justice and equality. Religion needs to be evaluated and critiqued properly, which we will be getting onto next. In the meantime, certain as we may feel towards faith in God or faith in no God or somewhere in between, None of us can fill every gap with proof. As I said at the beginning of this chapter, faith is unavoidable. Leaps of faith are required. So, do I put my faith in a living God until somebody proves otherwise? Or put it elsewhere until somebody proves otherwise? For me, the warmth found from a personal reciprocal relationship with God and with others who have chosen in two, makes the leap of faith a slightly less lonely one. For me, it seems easier to believe in God, a God that I have experienced, than not. One day we will know for sure, and I suspect then we will find out that there's even more to this than we initially thought, because God is so much bigger. Also, in the meantime, I'm not going to rename this chapter because whatever percentage I try putting on faith, I will no doubt be wrong. That's it for this chapter. Next chapter is chapter 7a, Religious Underwear.